Please turn with me to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, and as you turn there, just again, let me uh, encourage you, as, as you've already been encouraged this morning, to uh, make sure you stop by and look at some of the things with the ministry fair. Hopefully you've already done so. Especially encourage you to consider being a part of, of care groups. It's, a, I think, a very vital ministry for the health of our, our church, that we're involved in community and, and being in relationship with one another. So I encourage you to look at that, and as we're involved in community. We need to be involved in serving one another in the, the ministry fair, kind of the, the ministry tables, I think are really encouraging as you think about all the things that are going on in the life of our church, just to be able to, to see what God is doing. And then, of course, um, I encourage you to look at your bulletin. There's a great uh, little insert there that kind of goes along with that that describes some, some uh, issues and different things that are going on at, uh, at Bethany Community Church. And then uh, come out this evening to Camp Good News for our evening service, and we're going to be talking about God as, as Trinity, three in one, and so it's going to be a great time together this evening as we do that, and welcome new people into membership, and, and talk about the, the building and other things as a church. So we're uh, in Luke 24, hopefully uh, by, that, by now you're there, and we're looking at Luke 24, we're in the last chapter of the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 35, and if you're able to, if you would stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together. Verse 13 of Luke 24, Luke writes, again, it's the things of Sunday morning have just taken place, and he says in verse 13, that very day two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walked? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? He said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is towards evening, and 
The day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed as it appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. You may be seated. May you be encouraged. May our hearts burn within us this morning as we look at God's word together. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ability to know you in it. And Father, we pray for our hearts. We pray for the, the foolishness that is in us the slowness of our hearts to believe all that you've written. Open your word to us this morning. Give us eyes to see, hearts that are soft. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. You know how when you're reading a book that you've read before and you really love, and you know how excited you get as you approach the end where all the different themes of the book kind of come together. There's a movie that you've watched uh, many times, and you love the movie, and you love the end of the movie where all these different plot twists come together, and, and all the pieces fit together, and there's this great satisfaction as you see resolution occur. I have felt very excited as we've neared the end of the Gospel of Luke. In fact, this passage here in Luke 24, this, this story of these two disciples on the road to Emmaus and Jesus' words to these disciples, this has been a part of the scriptures that I have been looking forward to since before we even began studying the Gospel of Luke. And so this has been very exciting for me to anticipate us coming to this portion of the Gospel of Luke. It's been, well, those of you who have been with us uh, know how long we've been in the Gospel of Luke. It's been many years, several years now, and so we're nearing the end, and this is an incredibly important passage. Here's kind of my plan to tackle what we're looking at in these verses. What I'd like us to do is I'd like us just to simply lay out the story and walk through the story together. We're going to walk through the story, and as we walk through the story, there's going to be a, a main idea, this, this main concept that I think that Luke wants us to grasp in presenting it. And what I think that he's going to want us to understand, and what I think is going to come through the pages of Scripture as we look at the story, is that Jesus Christ is revealed in God's Word. If you want to know who Jesus is, go to His Word. Uh, we're going to see that, that all of Scripture points us to the person of Jesus. You want to know Jesus? Know the Word. That's what's going to come out as we look at the story. So we're going to walk through the story. We're going to see that. And then what I want us to do is talk about a very, very specific application of that main idea. I'm going to want us to look at the idea of how that truth influences preaching coming together to study God's Word is a central act of what we do on a Sunday morning. 
It's a central part of our worship service. And so I, I think it's going to be helpful for us as we talk about what preaching is and what preaching is to do. And then as we look at that specific application, what I also think is going to happen is as we look at this application of in the area of preaching, what I think is going to happen is it's going to help us understand the main idea of the text better. So we're going to walk through the story, we're going to see this, this idea emerge, then we're going to look at a specific application when it comes to preaching, and that's going to help us understand the main idea better. Now, we're not going to be able to do all that this morning. We're going to hopefully get through the story this morning, talk a little bit about the application in the area of preaching, and then when I come back in two weeks, we're going to really dive into this, this idea of, of what preaching is and what preaching is to do. Obviously, as we talk about preaching, that's something that I, I take very personally. It's, it's a subject that is very near and dear to my heart. It's my primary responsibility here at Bethany Community Church to, to bring God's Word to you on a Sunday morning. And let me first say before I say anything else, let me be very clear on, on one point. I believe that this church is perhaps the most supportive church that I, I've ever been in or been a part of or heard of, the most supportive church when it comes to the area of preaching. Each of you are so encouraging to me and to my family as we endeavor to, to proclaim, as, as I endeavor to proclaim God's word each week. So let me just be very clear on that point. Let me also say this. Let me just be a little transparent with you. And, and what I'm about to say, please hear, does not reflect negatively on you. It reflects somewhat negatively on me. And it just, it's kind of some of my heart struggles. Here, here, let me just share with you some things that kind of shake my confidence sometimes when it comes to the area of preaching. Things that, that shake my confidence as I prepare to preach or think about what I'm supposed to do when I preach. One thing that kind of shakes my confidence are the occasionally negative comments that I, I receive from, from people who, who come to our church. And I know sometimes when I'm preparing a text, I know that I'm saying some things that are going to offend people. And you have to be a, a pretty twisted individual to enjoy offending people, to enjoy standing up in front of a large group and saying, hope I get to offend some people today. That's, that's not an enjoyable thing. And as I prepare a text, sometimes my confidence can get a little shaken as I think about the reality that, you know, I know I'm going to offend some people. It can also shake my confidence a little bit when I think about the great diversity that exists within our church on a Sunday morning when I stand up to preach. There are some people who are older, some people who are younger, some people who come from one background, some people who come from foreign countries like Texas. I mean, there's people that are from all over the place, and it's just, it's, 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 it's daunting a little bit. And I also know this, I know that different people in our church have different preferences regarding some of the, some of the peripherals of preaching. Some people want more humor, some people want less humor, some people think that sermons sh should be a little bit more emotional, some say they're not, emo they're, they're too emotional. I mean, there's, there's just a diversity of opinions regarding how best to present a sermon. And so that can be a little daunting and shaking of the confidence. And then also, and, and again, this is just the reality, I'm, I'm being transparent here, it's just the reality of being in a church our size. It, it is inevitable, no matter how fantastic of a, of a preacher uh, I would be, no, no matter how good, I mean, 
John MacArthur, John Piper, those guys could stand up here and be the preacher, and this would still happen. No matter how good of a preacher you are, there are going to be people who decide to leave the church, and as they leave the church, they're going to tell you that one of the reasons they're leaving the church is because of your preaching, okay? That happens sometimes. I know, shocking. That happens sometimes at Bethany Community Church, and again, it can shake your confidence a little bit, all right? And then also just, you know, self-doubt. I think all of us struggle with that in some areas of our life, right? So here's the, the reason I share all that is, is is because I want you to, to get to this idea. How do I rightly evaluate my preaching? What standard do I use to say my preaching is effective, it's in line with what God wants my preaching to look like, or here's where my preaching is failing, here's where I need to improve. What, what standard do I use to decide whether or not I'm being effective, and what standard do I use to decide where I need to improve? What, what do you use to define how successful a, a sermon has been in your life? There's a great book by Haddon Robinson called Biblical Preaching, and it begins with this, I, I love the line that he begins the book with. He says, I do not appreciate opera. What is worse, I have several friends who do. <laughs> And he talks about how these friends will take him to the opera. And, and he says, I don't understand what's going on. I, I don't understand the language. I, I don't understand how to evaluate whether or not it's been a successful opera. He says, if you were to ask me my impressions of what had taken place, I, I could tell you about the well-constructed sets. I could tell you about the, the um, beautiful costumes. He says, I could tell you about the heftiness of the soprano or whatever. But I, I couldn't tell you. I, I don't know how to evaluate what's taken place. And then listen to what he says as he draws the analogy to preach. He says, when people attend church, they may respond to the preacher like a novice at the opera. They've never been told what a sermon is supposed to do. And commonly, many listeners react to the emotional highs. They enjoy the human interest stories. They jot down a, a catchy sentence or two. And they judge the sermon a success if the preacher quits on time. But important matters, such as the subject of the sermon, may escape them completely. And maybe that's, that's true for some of us. We react to the emotional highs of a sermon. We may say a sermon was successful if it kind of fitted within the, the time frame. We may consider the sermon successful if the preacher doesn't stutter too much or stammer or doesn't lose us in terms of the flow of the sermon. We have all these criteria by which different ones of us gauge the success of a sermon, but how does God gauge whether or not a sermon is successful? How does God look at a preaching ministry and say, yes, this is what a preaching ministry should be? Luke 24 reveals the answer to us. In Luke 24, we see Jesus proclaim God's word. And as we see Jesus proclaim God's word, we see the essence of what proclaiming the word should be. As Jesus proclaims God's word, he proclaims himself. He goes to scripture and he explains himself as he goes through the pages of scripture in his conversation with these disciples. We're going to see the centrality of Jesus Christ in the Word of God. We're going to see it this morning. We're going to see it in a few months as we begin going through the Old Testament, kind of a high-level overview of the Old Testament. 
And what I hope that you do is I hope you see this main idea that Scripture reveals who Jesus is, then you see it applied in this area of preaching, and then you go back and you apply it in other areas of your life as well. As we look at the story, we're going to see confusion, we're going to see explanation, and then we're going to see understanding. And that's really what we're going to spend the majority of our time looking at this morning. So look at your text with me if you would, and we're first of all going to see confusion. Confusion in verses 13 through 24. Luke begins by telling us that it's that very day. In other words, it's still Sunday. Jesus has, has risen from the dead in the morning, and now it is uh, in the afternoon. And it's that same day that he's risen from the dead. And the same day in the afternoon, there's these two disciples. One of them we know is Cleopas, and the other we don't know his name. These two disciples have been in Jerusalem. They've, they've been there. They've seen everything that's taken place. They have been there whenever the women have returned from the tomb. And now they're going to a village that's about seven miles from Jerusalem. And as they head to this village of Emmaus, they're engaged in a conversation. And the words that Luke uses to describe their conversation describe not just a, a pleasant exchange of ideas about a topic. In other words, they're not just saying, my, isn't it a lovely day? Yes, it is a lovely day. Haven't some really crazy things been going on in Jerusalem? My, why, my, yes, Cleopas, some crazy things have been taking place in Jerusalem. Now, the words that Luke uses to describe their conversation describe almost a debate. It describes an intensely emotional conversation. There's this, this passionate exchange of ideas. And the idea is that it's like they continue to talk about these things, trying to, to come to some sort of resolution. Imagine it's a, a Friday afternoon, and you're sitting in your office, and you're getting ready to leave for the day, and your, your boss comes by your office, and he looks into your office, and he says, hey, uh, by the way, we need to talk Monday morning, major stuff going on, and you need to be here early Monday morning. I got to go. Leaves. And you go home. Honey, I don't know, my boss seemed really upset, and so I have to talk to him Monday morning. And the conversation begins to go in a, in a, in a, in a circle. Your wife says, well, what do you need to talk to him about? I don't know. He just said, come to my office on Monday morning, and it's important. And, you know, there have been these layoffs that have been taking place. And your wife says, well, yeah, 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 they, but, but your quarterly report was good, right? Yeah, it was great. And well, well, did he say it fast, or did he say it slow? Well, he kind of was like, I, I mean... I couldn't tell if he was fast because he was upset at me or because he had to get to his car. Okay, well, did he say, I need to see you or I need to see you? I mean, like, how did he say it? I don't know. I mean, well, what did, what did, what did Mike and accounting do? Well, Mike was like right out of the door and he just kind of walked away. Did he walk fast or slow? I don't know. What does he want to talk to you about? Him? I don't know. It just goes in a circle. Well, here's what, here's, I, here's what the conversation between these disciples, I think it's kind of going in a circle. And there's kind of like an, a debate. There's this an emotional intensity to it. You know, Jesus was a prophet, Cleopas says. The other disciple, I know he was, but he's dead. Yeah, yeah, I know, but that trial was a sham of a trial. They had no right to do it. They're being false witnesses, and yeah, I know he was. I know it was, Cleopas. We've been over this, but he's dead. There's nothing we can do about it. Yeah, I know he's dead, but he was a prophet. Yeah, I know Cleopas, but he said, yeah, but what about our hope was in him? We had trusted in him. Yeah, I know, but he's dead. Yeah, yeah, but the women... Those, when they, those women came into the room and were there, and that was crazy. Yeah, I know, but he's dead. 
I know he's dead, but still. They're going over and over again, the things that have taken place in the last 24 hours, the last week, over Jesus' ministry. And they're not getting anywhere. They're confused. So they're walking to this village, and it's seven miles away, and they're just intense, this, this conversation is emotional. They're sad. They're sorrowful. They're, their world has, has, has crumbled around them. And Luke tells us that as they're walking to Emmaus, suddenly Jesus himself drew near. And perhaps there's this, there's this other road that joins with the road that they're on. And, and suddenly Jesus is, is walking along with them. And it, it's one of those situations where they're engaged in this, this deep conversation. And they kind of give this cursory hello to Jesus. But they're still engaging in their conversation. And they're so emotionally worked up and, and so distraught over the things that have taken place. And so they're continuing their conversation. And, and Jesus kind of walks with them for a little bit. And then he interrupts. Verse 17. What is this conversation, and that word again describes this intensely emotional conversation. What is this conversation you guys are having? What are you, what are you talking about as you're walking? What's the deal? And I love what Luke says happens next. So here's the picture. Intense conversation, intense conversation. Jesus comes, hey, intense conversation. Hey, what are you guys talking about? Literally stops them in their tracks. He says they stood still and they looked sad. Here's someone that doesn't know, that isn't privy to their grief. And Cleopas answers a little bit sarcastically. You can see in these words that the emotional pain that he's going through, and I think perhaps he's still kind of worked up from this conversation he's been having with his unnamed companion. Are you like the dumbest person? Are you the most ignorant person in all of Jerusalem? Are You, you're, you must be the only person that's this ignorant that doesn't know the things that have taken place. Cleopas is confused, and his response, he's a little biting. And Jesus asks the most brilliant question in response. What things? What are you confused about? And because of that question, Jesus is able to hear Cleopas lay everything out on the table, everything that confuses him. There's kind of four, I think, kind of four areas that, that Cleopas is struggling with. And the first thing that he says here is, well, well, Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, we're talking about Jesus of Nazareth. The things we're talking about concern Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet. That's the, the first truth that Cleopas is clinging to. Look, I know that Jesus was a prophet. He doesn't say, I think that there's a guy that we thought was a prophet, or there was a guy who kind of acted like a prophet. There's a guy who may have been a prophet. He says, no, no, here's the thing. We're talking about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet. And we don't know how long Cleopas had walked with Jesus, but we assume that it had been for some time, at least, and Cleopas 
and this other guy have seen some amazing things that Jesus has done. We think about Luke 4.14 where Jesus comes and he returns the power, it returns in the power of the Spirit to Galilee and reports about and begin to, to go through all the surrounding country and he teaches in their synagogue being glorified by all. And perhaps these two guys were with Jesus whenever he uh, visited Nain and saw the widow of Nain and, and raised her son from the dead. And Luke seven sixteen says that as that happened, fear seized everyone present. They glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. Perhaps they were with him when he healed the blind man in John chapter 9, whenever he was asked who Jesus is, said, he is a prophet. In other words, the first truth that Cleopas is clinging to is the fact that this Jesus of Nazareth was a prophet. We, we know that he was a prophet. Everybody knew he was a prophet. Uh, you should have been here a week ago whenever we came into Jerusalem and, and everyone was, was singing and, and they were welcoming him. And, and as he taught in the temples, it was, the temples were filled to capacity, the area around him at least, of people wanting to hear his teaching. He was a prophet, a great prophet, testified to in both word and deed. His words were consistent with a prophet. His deeds were consistent with those of a prophet. But, something else, something else about this Jesus of Nazareth, something else that's been happening, another thing we're talking about, we're talking about, number two, his rejection. So he was a prophet, number one, but also the other piece of evidence that's that's going on through our minds right now is he was rejected. The chief priests, the rulers rejected him, and they, they delivered him up to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. We were with him this past week where he taught in the temple, yes, and, and the people were surrounding him and, and responding to his teaching, yes, but there were also some other people there. And they didn't like what Jesus was teaching. They saw a threat to their power structure, and if these disciples had walked with Jesus for any length of time, they could, they could say, this isn't new, it just kind of culminated here, but people who are part of the religious power structure have felt, have felt threatened by Jesus and they rejected him. They delivered him up, and Rome crucified him. But, and, and here's a third thing Cleopas says, but, but look, you don't get it. This was the guy our hope was in. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. So he was a prophet, and, and he was crucified. But, but look, you need to understand, our hope was in him. We thought he was the one that was going to redeem Israel. Now, keep your finger in Luke 24, and you can turn back to the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. And we see that this is a theme that was developed from the very beginning, this theme of, of Jesus being one who redeems. You come to Luke chapter 1, and Zechariah is prophesying. He says in verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has redeemed, visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant of David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. And you go to chapter 2 and Simeon prays and blesses 
God as he holds Jesus in his arms and says in verse 29, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, your deliverance that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And so, look, this is what we don't get. There was this, this prophet and he was a prophet, and, and he was delivered to be crucified, and, and, and yet we had hoped in him. Our, our trust was in him, that he was the one that was going to redeem Israel, that this is the one that scriptures had spoken about. And now, the fourth thing that Cleopas kind of lays out on the table to describe his confusion, the fourth thing is that some weird things have been going on. He says, yes, is verse 21. Besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. And moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying they'd seen a vision of angels. And, and the angel said that he'd risen from the dead. And then, now here's the thing, though. Him they did not see. Angel, vision, these women are part of our company, part of the disciples, following Jesus. Him they did not see. That's the confusion. That's what these guys are wrestling with as they walk to Emmaus. Their worlds have been turned upside down. Their hope has been dashed. They thought that Jesus was the Redeemer, the hopes were dashed, and now they've got these different things that they're hashing over, trying, how does this all fit together? That's the confusion in verses 13 through 24. Next, we see an explanation. And I think that Jesus' words here in verse, and what we see in verses 25 through 27 are perhaps some of the most important verses in all of Scripture for understanding how we are to approach scripture and what we are to believe about it. So again, here's the picture. Start off, they're in Jerusalem. These disciples begin to walk to Emmaus. Jesus joins them. He stops them in their track as he, as he tries to figure out, what's, as he asks them what's going on. They tell him as they continue walking, and they say, look, this is all the, the things that we're confused about that we don't understand. And then Jesus says this in verse 25. He said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. I want you to notice what Jesus does not say in those words to him that he speaks. He doesn't say, guys, it's okay. The Old Testament is really hard to understand. And Cleopas, what's the Old Testament? Never mind, you'll find out later. He doesn't say, guys, 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 Isaiah, I know, it's long, confusing, not your problem. He doesn't say, guys, I understand, there's all these interpretations of the Old Testament, of, of these rabbinical teachings, all these different rabbinical schools about how to interpret this. <laughs> I get it. I want you to see something here. I want you to see what he says. He begins by calling them names. Spiritual insults in a loving way. <laughs> you guys are foolish and you're spiritually stupid. 
Again, that's a theological term. You're not that bright spiritually. The problem isn't, he doesn't say, yeah, the Bible is really a deficient book. Scripture is really, those are the scrolls in which Scripture is contained, those are really deficient. He says the deficiency lies with you. You're foolish and you're spiritually slow to believe all of Scripture, all that's been written. You're quick to believe those things about a conquering Messiah, about the Messiah's glory, about the Christ and and His coming, but you're slow to believe everything the Scripture says. Now, here's why I believe, as we think about how Scripture contains the message concerning Jesus, here's why I believe this is such an important thing for us to grasp. We live in a culture that doubts our ability to understand and apply God's Word. I was just reading a blog that a pastor wrote this past week, and in this blog, the the pastor mentioned how we can't really say that the Bible is our source of authority because there are so many different interpretations of it. Now, just just think about that for a moment. You're going to hear that argument frequently. You can't understand the, the Bible cannot be your source of authority because there's so many different interpretations. Think about, think about the logic of that statement. Some people hear that and they go, you know what, there are a lot of interpretations of Scripture. I guess I can't understand it. It's not, while the statement is true, the conclusion that's drawn from it is not a logical conclusion to draw for a couple reasons. First of all, it implies that all of Scripture is confusing. It's like, well, because there's some parts that are hard to understand, I guess it's all hard to understand, and, and I, I can't understand anything of it. Second Peter, in, in Second Peter uh, chapter 3, Peter is talking about Paul's writings, and he calls them Scripture, and he, and he talks about how some people have distorted Paul's writing. He says, um, Paul wrote to you, and... Um, There are some things in Paul's writings that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. In other words, he doesn't say everything. He says there are some things that are hard to understand, but it's not all hard to understand. And the fact that something is hard to understand doesn't mean that we just don't have a responsibility to understand it anymore. So whenever we say that Whenever a person says, well, Bible can't be authoritative because there's lots of different interpretations, it doesn't make sense logically to assume that just because there are some parts that are hard to understand, it's it's all impossible to understand. It also, that argument also implies that just because there are different interpretations, we can't discern what the right one is. It's almost like, well, because there are choices, I guess I can't decide anything. That's just ridiculous. <laughs> Friday afternoon, I'm walking into the farmhouse where our offices are, and I'm walking into the kitchen of the farmhouse, and as I walk into the kitchen, I open up the door, and there uh, Rachel has baked, I think it was Rachel, had just baked some fresh chocolate chip cookies. They're sitting on this little uh, little tray to kind of cool down. There, you, know, you can smell the chocolate chip cookies smell wafting through the kitchen. And I look at those cookies, and I know 
as I look at those cookies, that they're supposed to be for visitors to our church. And I also know that in the freezer, there are some store-bought chocolate chip cookies. I mentioned they're, they're frozen, okay? Store-bought frozen cookies and freshly baked chocolate chip cookies on the oven. Now, the story isn't about me. I don't want to brag, but I did not eat any of the, I, well, again, I don't want to brag. Um, it's very disciplined. Now, if you were to say, Daniel, what do you think is the best chocolate chip cookie available to you right now? I wouldn't say there's choices. I don't know. I, there's two choices. There's no way to know. I would say those, the fresh ones, the freshly baked ones. If you were to come over to my house and we were to put my children around a table and I was to say, uh, children whom I love so dearly, uh, here's a chocolate chip cookie. I'm going to divide it into four pieces. And then I were to divide it into four pieces and I were to say, now children whom I love so dearly, who love each other, blah, blah, blah. Which is the best of these four pieces? My children, I guarantee you, they would not say, oh, whichever one. Each of them would be able to tell you which was the best quarter, and they would tell you why. They would all arrive at a unanimous decision and each have opinions about why they should receive that quarter of the cookie. My point is this. Just because there are choices doesn't mean we, we can't discern what is best. When it comes to interpretations, we don't say, well, there's, inter there's different interpretations of Scripture. I guess we can't understand it. In fact, Keep your finger there in Luke 24. This is such an important point to grasp. Turn back to the book of Isaiah. It's, Isaiah is after, it's several books after Psalm. Psalms is kind of the biggest book before it. You, you go after Proverbs, the other wisdom literature. You come to Isaiah. Look at Isaiah 29. In Isaiah 29, I've, I've gone to this passage before because I, I think it so beautifully describes the way in which many people look at Scripture today. And it's not, catch this, it's not an option that Jesus leaves for us as we think about Scripture. You come to Isaiah 29 and you look at verse 11, and we see here the response that some people have to Isaiah's prophecy, to, to God's word. Verse 11, Isaiah says, The vision of all this, all these, these words of God that I'm speaking, has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. And when men give it to one who can read, saying, read this, he says, I can't, it's sealed. In other words, here's, you have a responsibility to hear God's word, and, and they've said, oh, I, I wish I could, but it's sealed. So I, I don't know what it says. I can't, it's not authoritative for me. Or it's like when you give a book to one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, oh, I can't read. What, the, what Isaiah is saying is, God has given me his word to give to you, and you're just looking at it and saying, oh, I wish I could understand it, but I can't. I guess it can't be authoritative in my life. Now, here's the point. As these disciples go on the road to Emmaus, and they explain their confusion to Jesus, Jesus does, doesn't pat them on the back and say, there, 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 Isaiah is really confusing. <laughs> you don't have a responsibility to know what Isaiah says. He says, no. In a loving way, he says, yeah, the problem is you. <laughs> the problem is that you have been slow to believe everything that the scriptures have spoken. And then, and if there's any moment in any Bible story or, or any part of human history I 
could, be a, could, could go back and be a part of, verse 27 would be it. If there's any moment in time I could experience firsthand, verse 27 would be it. It says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them. And that word interpret is, is, is the word, same word we get the word hermeneutics or, or, or study of, the study of Scripture. He interpreted, he explained to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. Wouldn't you have loved to just be walking behind Jesus as he talked to these two guys and went through all the Scriptures, kind of big picture, and showed them how every part of Scripture related to himself. Probably started in Genesis, Genesis 3.15. He, he talked to you, you know, Moses wrote, wrote about the fall, and there's a problem with sin. And as he talked about the problem that humanity has with sin, he goes, remember what God told Adam and Eve in the garden. As he, he looks at Eve and says, yeah, there's going to be a, a coming seed, and, and your seed is, is going to be bruised. And, uh, or he's, he's talking to, to the serpent and, and uh, to, to Eve and to, to Adam, and he talks about how the, the serpent is going to bruise the, the heel of the seed of the woman, and, and yet the, the seed is going to crush the serpent's head. And he talks about, Jesus probably talked through the, the sacrificial system. He, he talked about the Passover lamb. He says the, this, this Passover lamb was the, a lamb that was slain, and, and the angel of death passed over, pass, there was a Passover, as the angel of death passed over the homes of those that were covered in the blood of the Passover lamb. And he walked through the sacrificial system and he, he continued to talk to them about this, this idea of seed and this, this coming seed descended from the woman. He, he talked about the, 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 the seed from the line of Judah and how this, was going to be a, this person was going to be a king. And then he would talk to them as he, he talks to them. He helps them understand not just the glory of the Messiah, but the, the reality that the Messiah should suffer. He took them to the passages like Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53, and he, he took them to the, the book of Psalms and described in the book of Psalms this, this suffering servant, and he goes through all of Scripture and describes to them the reality of a suffering Messiah. And as he describes the reality of a suffering Messiah, He's describing to them in all of Scripture the things concerning himself, the things concerning one who takes the penalty of sin on himself. He went to passages like, like Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. And he says, look, you guys have believed some of the things that the prophets have spoken, but you haven't believed all of the things that the prophets have spoken. And he goes and he tells them on the road to Emmaus the things in Scripture concerning himself. And what do we see? What do we see as we, we see Jesus talking to these disciples? What we see is that they gain understanding. And here's the main point of the text, I think, in the explanation, is that, that Scripture explains who Christ is. In Scripture, we find who Jesus is. We want to know who Jesus is, go to his word. Now look at their understanding that they have 
beginning in verse 28. They go to the village, and he acts like he's going to go further. They beg him to stay. They say, look, it's evening. It's getting late. The day is almost over. But, and he decides, yeah, I'll stay with you. And so there, he goes to the table. He takes the bread. He blesses it. He breaks it. He gives it to him. And it says their eyes were opened. Now, what it is exactly that causes their eyes to be opened, Luke doesn't tell us. Perhaps it's simply the, the hearing of Jesus pray and, and breaking the bread and, and thinking about what they've heard about the, the Last Supper and, and, and realizing, hey, this is Jesus. Perhaps they, they see his nail-scarred hands and, and recognize that it's Jesus as they look at his hands as he passes out the bread. We're not sure. But as he breaks the bread, he's known to them. And he vanishes, verse 31. These guys are excited. And I love what they say in verse 32, and, and, and this should be true of, of all of our study of God's Word. Our, our hearts burned within us while He talked to us on the road, while He opened to us the Scriptures. They get up. They've just arrived in Emmaus. They've just come from Jerusalem. That same hour, that moment, they get up from the table. They run back to Jerusalem. They come to where the eleven and the others are, and they, they say, look, the, the Lord is, has risen, or the the." Eleven are saying to them, the Lord is risen. He's appeared to Simon. There's big news going on. And the guys who've just come from Emmaus say, yeah, yeah, that, wow, that's awesome. He's also appeared to us. And they tell them how they came to know him as he broke bread with them. What I want you to see, what I want you to see is that it is in Scripture that you find who Jesus is. Scripture is our authoritative source for knowing who God is. It's where our hearts burn as we encounter Christ within these pages. Okay. I want to go ahead and I just want to give you a taste for what I'm going to talk about in two weeks. I'm, I'm too excited about what we're going to talk about in two weeks just to leave it here, Okay. Here's what I want to talk about in two weeks. If you're taking notes, you can turn over the back of the bulletin and, and here are the, the kind of four foundational truths regarding proclaiming Christ through preaching that I want us to get to. This is the application that we're going to talk about in two weeks that I, I hope you find encouraging as well. The first thing that we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about the purpose of preaching. We're going to see that the purpose of preaching is to proclaim Christ. The purpose of preaching isn't to have an emotional high. The purpose of preaching isn't to cause us to, to feel good about ourselves. The purpose of preaching isn't to grow a, a church numerically. Or, you know, the, the ultimate purpose, the ultimate goal, the goal that supersedes all other goals in preaching, proclaim Christ. Very simple. The purpose of preaching is to do nothing less than proclaim Christ. The second thing that we're going to see is the task of preaching. We're going to see that the task of preaching is to explain and apply Scripture. How do I pro proclaim Christ? Well, I don't get up on a Sunday morning and I say, well, here, I want you to, here are some of Daniel Bennett's thoughts on the political climate in our country. Uh, here are some of my thoughts on my latest hobby. Let me tell you some, some things that I think are going to help you be more successful in fill in the blank through some of my own personal opinions. My task as a pastor is to, is to fulfill my goal in preaching and proclaiming Christ by explaining God's word to you and helping you apply it. 
There is no other source that I can go to to help you understand who Jesus Christ is and how you should live your life and how he should be proclaimed. There's no other source that I can go to apart from his word. I cannot come to you on a Sunday morning and say, let me tell you about this, this sweet story I read in Reader's Digest or on the internet. Here's this you know, email that I've gotten that's probably not true, but it's a cute story. There's no other, there's, I can't do that. The task of preaching is to explain Scripture The third thing that we're going to talk about, we're going to see that the subject of preaching is Jesus Christ. Who do we talk about as we come to the pages of Scripture? Jesus. Every page of Scripture reveals something new and and adds to our depth of understanding as to who Jesus is. The subject of preaching is specifically the Son of God. And the fourth thing we're going to see about preaching in a few weeks is that the fruit of preaching, what should result from faithful biblical preaching is conviction. Conviction that the things that God says in his word are true. And then life change. We become convinced that the things that God's word says are true. We become confident that these things are true. And then we don't just walk away and say, well, that's, that's great that I intellectually know these things. Maybe I'll write an encyclopedia about Jesus or some blog article that will help people intellectually understand. The result of faithful biblical preaching is I come to the words of God and I say, now I understand Jesus better and I'm convinced that the things that God's word says about Jesus are true and now my life is going to be different as a result. That should be true as a result of faithful preaching. It should be true as a result of faithful study of God's word on our own as well. God does not say to us, oh, you didn't understand Scripture. There are too many different interpretations. Never mind. God says, know me through my word. We're about to sing a song, ancient words, and and think deeply about the things that, that that these words say. And understand, ancient words reveal me. They reveal my condition before God. They reveal the hope of salvation in Jesus Christ, and they reveal that, that I can only be restored to relationship with God through placing my, son, my faith in his son, Jesus Christ, alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your ancient words. Allow them to change our hearts, and we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.